Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest. She's a repeat guest on the show. She's my good friend, Stephanie Boldrini. Welcome to the show all the way from San Francisco. Thank you so much for having me, Victor. I really appreciate it. Great to have you here. Now, on today's show, we're going to allow the listeners to eavesdrop on a conversation that we're having about development. You're looking at a potential development opportunity. And I want to say this with the caveat that this isn't to be construed as advice on mortgage brokering. None of us are registered mortgage brokers. This is simply a discussion about different ways it can be done based on experience and perspective. So with that, uh, let's go, Stephanie. Yeah, so <clears throat> thank you, Victor. As um, uh, your listeners may not know, I have zero experience with development, and I decided to reach out to you to ask a few questions because I would love to learn a little bit more about construction loans and how do they work. I'm partnering up with a uh, an architect here in the city and uh, have no idea where to get started uh, on the development side. So I would love to hear your perspective, Victor, for the very first development project, even though we might have, we have experience with other real estate investing projects, do we need to raise 100% of the price of the property plus the construction costs or what would be some loan options for us? So maybe let's start by talking about where you are in the development process. If you're talking about a greenfield development that is not entitled versus an infill development where you're building by right, that is, you're not changing the zoning in any way, those are very different. If you're going to be going through the entitlement process, then you have a great deal more uncertainty involved with the amount of time that it might take. So the decision whether to purchase the land all cash, meaning all out of equity, versus leveraging the land is a decision that's based on risk. And risk really has a lot to do with time. So, for example, if you are anticipating a one-year entitlement process and in the end it takes three, you could easily run out of cash if you've leveraged the land. So a lot of developers tend to purchase the land cash simply to mitigate that risk because that front end of the process has some time risk associated with it. So that's maybe the place to start. What is your approach on this particular property? Right. So we want to start with a very simple fixing project. So by a few units, we're going to fix it. We don't need to change anything, no entitlements, uh, and then sell it. That's the okay. goal. Okay. So th- that makes a lot of sense. Uh, now, are you looking for your exit to be a sale or are you looking for the exit to be a refinance? A sale at this point. Okay, at this point, because there's two different approaches you can take. Mm -hmm. You know, a sale is obviously a taxable event. You're in this business to make money, so that's going to be a taxable event. Oftentimes, the the build and hold or the buy and hold process, whether it's a value add that's a light value add, paint and carpet at one end of the spectrum versus ground up construction at the other end of the spectrum, there's still value add projects. And often, especially if the product is a rental, a build and hold can be a great way to do it because your exit can be a refinance, which is not a taxable event. And of course, holding for the long term is the path to building wealth. So that those are two different avenues to consider and what otherwise might be the exact same construction project. The problem is that we are in California and uh, we don't want to hold residential real estate here. Absolutely. And we don't want to have tenants. <laughs> so that that is our approach at the moment. Understand fully. 
Understand fully. Okay. So when it comes to construction loans, there's a couple of different approaches. Uh, one is if the exit is in fact going to be a sale, the other variable is are you going to be selling the building as a whole or are these going to be individually deeded units that are going to be sold as, as separate transactions? As a whole. As a whole. Okay. So you're looking for a single buyer. Correct. So at this stage, you're not going to be looking for permanent financing of any form on this project, but you are going to want to make sure that your exit is going to be fairly timely. You've got to have sufficient margin in the project that if the market goes sideways a little bit, there's going to be still an appetite for that product. Even if you have to sell it at a little bit of a discount, you're still going to get out of the project cleanly and swiftly without being stuck holding it for an extended period of time with the meter running at a fairly high interest rate. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The market for these types of loans is much smaller this year than it was last year. And I think it's important to recognize that because a lot of lenders that were in this space a year ago have exited the market. The, uh, the market's become much more risk averse. There are not as many lenders in this space right now. Now, there's going to be two types of loans in this type of bridge financing. The first is what we call a recourse loan where it's recourse to the borrower, meaning if you mess up, you've signed a personal guarantee and they're coming after your assets personally beyond just the physical asset itself. The second type of loan, uh, which is what we prefer to use, is what's called a non-recourse loan. This is more asset-based lending. They obviously want the sponsors to have a strong balance sheet. And really at that point, they're only asking for the sponsors to sign two guarantees. The first is they guarantee not to commit fraud. And that's a fairly easy one to meet. Uh, That's often called a bad boy carve out in the lingo of uh, commercial lending. And then the second is to guarantee completion. So if you complete the project and it doesn't sell and you're now in default on that particular construction loan, you hand them the keys, they own the building and you walk away. That's a non-recourse loan. So generally speaking, because there's a bit more risk associated with Uh, new construction, developers like to sign non-recourse loans. But to meet the bar for a non-recourse loan, it's important to have the right members on the team. So the lender is going to be looking for a few things from you. They're going to be looking for the experience, meaning having done projects like this. It doesn't have to be you personally, but they want that experience on the core team, on the sponsor team. And the second thing that they're looking for is some balance sheet strength. So they want to know that if you're signing a guarantee to guarantee completion, that you, in fact, have both the balance sheet strength and the liquidity to complete the project if something bad was to happen in the project. They might even go a step further and ask you to put additional reserves as part of the construction project in escrow, in trust, with the lender, so that if that extra money is needed, for whatever reason, it's sitting there and it's available. So the lender themselves would be sitting on the extra cash. It's not cash that's even part of the project, so to speak. It's there just in case as an additional either working capital reserve or you know, some kind of reserve. Now, some projects, if the, if the final building is in fact a rental building, some projects might be sold either vacant or they might be sold fully tenanted. Those are different markets. That's a different buyer. So you may want to make the decision well, I'm going to get this project leased up. We're going to deliver it as a turnkey product with a high quality property manager already in place. And that way you've got a cash flowing asset. That also helps mitigate your risk because now that rent is starting to come in and you're not 
experiencing negative cash flow each and every month. So if it takes you an extra six months to sell, well, okay. So you were managing a property for six months longer than you expected, but it's not a disaster. So that's another consideration, another decision for you to make. Are you going to tenant up the building or not? And if so, how quickly? Okay. Okay. And what, what kind of down payment do they require? Typically on new construction, it depends. So as always. And, you know, it really comes down to balance sheet strength, uh, development experience. I've seen loans at 60, 65% loan to cost. I've seen loans at 80, 85% loan to cost. Uh, We'll talk about loan to value in a moment because that's another calculation. So typically the lender, when they issue you a term sheet, will have both numbers associated with their lending criteria. They will typically say something like the lower of, 70% loan to cost or 80% loan to value. So they will run both calculations and see which of those two numbers is lower and then give you the lower of those two numbers. Now you're going to say to yourself, well, wait a minute, building's not built. How do we know what it's worth when it's completed? So what you're going to do concert with the lender is you're going to commission with an appraiser what's called an as-built appraisal. So the as-built appraisal is going to model what the finished product is going to look like. They're going to take all of your drawings from the architect and your finishes, and they're going to do a comparable analysis on product that's already in the market, see what it's renting for, look at what the cap rate is in the market, and determine what that building would be worth if it existed in its finished form in the market today. So that's called an as-built appraisal. And they're going to pick the lower of those two numbers. Now, of course, when the buyer ultimately goes to get their permanent financing, they're going to have to get their own brand new appraisal in the market at that point in time. But the as-built appraisal serves as a guide for the construction lender for what the building ultimately would be worth on completion. Makes sense. Okay. Yes. The tricky part in construction loans is how you manage the float of cash. And this is something to be negotiated with your general contractor because the lender is going to want to disperse the funds in a particular sequence. They want to spend your money first, meaning they'll spend 100% of the equity in the project before they advance a single dollar of the loan. They want to put their money at risk last. And not only that, they want to make sure that the project is meeting its milestones because If you have a pile of two-by-fours sitting on the sidewalk, they can't lend against that because it's not part of the building. It's not part of their collateral. Their collateral is the building. It's secured by a first lien position mortgage. So until those materials are installed in the building, they can't consider that to be part of the building. So you're going to build in what are called draws. And what will happen is you'll go build a foundation, and then you're going to call the inspector from the bank, And the bank's inspector is going to come out to the site. They're going to take pictures. They're going to estimate the cost of building that foundation. Compare that against your sworn statement of construction that was done with you and your general contractor and say, yes, the foundation was built according to plan, according to specification. Here's $100,000 to reimburse you for the $100,000 that you spent on building that foundation. Then you're going to go spend more money now on framing, let's say, and you're going to frame the building. And then you're going to call the inspector again, and they're going to say, yes, framing is complete. And here's, you know, the whatever it is, $150,000, $200,000 for framing. And you're going to go through that entire process multiple times until the building's complete. Through rough-in, through rough-in inspection, through finished drywall. There's multiple different phases, and you can 
design your project with as many or as few draws as you want, recognizing that each time you call the inspector out, they're going to charge you a fee of a few thousand dollars for that inspection. So you don't want too many and you don't want too few. If you have too few, then you're having to front too much money between reimbursements. And if you have too many, now the number of inspections, the number of draws are starting to get in the way of the project. So if you have to float 200000 a quarter million dollars, a couple of million dollars between draws, you've got to ask yourself, where's that money coming from? Because it might be part of the loan, but you have to have that up front. Now, maybe your general contractor is willing to float that for you. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. It's got to be negotiated. Makes a lot of sense. Any do's and don'ts or things that we should keep in mind? The negotiation of the contract with your general contractor is one of the critical items. The contracts follow a format that's published by, by AIA. This is the American Institute of Architects. It's a standard form for construction. And it's a, these are large, complex documents. There's a document called AIA 101, AIA 201. The 201 document provides all of the definitions for the 101 documents. So you even just to understand these contracts, you literally have to have multiple documents open at the same time. And generally speaking, the contractor is going to want to write the contract in such a manner that they have the most latitude. If there's some surprise, they want you to pay for it because they don't want to be stuck having their profit margin reduced because there was a surprise in the project. You, on the other hand, have a fixed budget. You have a lender that's loaned you a fixed amount of money. You want the opposite. You want a guarantee that the project's going to be done for the amount of money that you've raised in the project. You don't want a cost overrun ever. So your your goals at that point in the project are not aligned. They are different. And so you just have to recognize that. And the negotiation of that contract is vital. Making sure that you have a lawyer who is experienced in negotiating construction contracts. Having that one skill set on your team will save you hundreds of thousands of dollars. It may cost you a bit of money up front, but it's going to save you hundreds of thousands of dollars. You get the wrong lawyer, you're going to have to pay them anyway, but you're going to get a poor quality piece of work that is going to leave you tremendously exposed. So you want to make sure, for example, that there are penalty clauses if the contractor is late for whatever reason. So you have a certain number of days allowed in the contract. You've got a certain number of days of weather delay allowed for in the contract. All these things have to be written out and specified in the contract. And then as an attachment to the contract are the drawings from the architect, the drawings from the engineers, and the specification document. Even the specification document, for example, on the projects that we're building are often seven, 800 pages. That's just the specification document alone. Then you're looking at another 100, 150 pages of architectural drawings. And then you've got the contract itself. So you're literally talking often a thousand pages that comprise the construction loan document, or sorry, the construction contract. And, and so there's a tremendous amount of detail that is both a benefit and a potential field of landmines if you're not careful. Wow, Victor, thank you so much. This was so helpful. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Great start. <laughs> there's a lot of moving parts in this, in this part of the business. And the other thing that happens often and is there's a three-way dialogue that occurs between your architect, the general contractor, and yourself as the owner of the project. And that's something called value engineering. So this is going through the concept that the architect has come up with, which is often 
beautiful, it's lovely, it's got tremendous aesthetic value, but it can sometimes be very costly. You know, often when we hire an architect, we hire them because we like the way they design things. But frankly, that's only about a third of what we really hire architects for. We hire them for their ability to thread the needle between the building code and what is practical to build. We hire them to do to project manage, and we hire them to come up with something that's going to be cost-effective to build. So, for example, they can design something that is aesthetically pleasing, but then if you look up and you realize, well, wait a minute, these walls, these structural walls don't line up with each other, and now we need to install load transfer beams, which are incredibly expensive, to transfer the physical load from one location to another. Now you've just multiplied the cost of your building. You start mixing materials like wood and steel, and now you've got different subcontractors that need to be on site at the same time. Now you've multiplied your cost again. There's all these different things that can come into play. And so it's super important to have someone in your team that has construction experience, who knows how to value engineer a project, who knows how to, for example, if you are too close to the property line, step back just a little bit so that you don't have to use fire-rated windows. Those fire-rated windows Mm -hmm. can cost five times what a regular window would cost, even for maybe just a couple of feet of savings. So all these little things can multiply your costs that you just have to be a little bit careful about, and it comes with experience. Unfortunately, there is no school for this. It really, it's a black art, if you will. And it comes from hanging around with the folks that really have the experience. It doesn't mean you have to partner with them, but definitely get them to look it over and give you their input. Thank you so much, Victor. That was incredible. I'm sure (laughs) you can give a course on this. (laughs) It's one of those things that just comes with the process of doing it day in and day out. We start to develop metrics in in our own minds for what things should cost. I often will look at a budget and I will see, well, wait a minute, why is the line item for flooring so high? I'll multiply out the gross floor area and say, wait a minute, why is the flooring coming in at $9 a square foot? The material is only $3 a square foot and it should be no more than $250 a square foot for installation. Why is it coming out to $9 a square foot? You spot this stuff quickly and easily when you have trained yourself to think that way. And most people will just look at a line item and say, okay, it's 50000 for flooring. Okay, it's 50000 yeah. The question is, what does that really mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I definitely need experience with you on the team. 100%. Exactly, exactly. And it's, uh, it's a matter of choosing where you want to spend your money. So, for example, there are things that you can do that might, on, a, on an individual line item, look to be more expensive. A very simple example is the cheapest kind of fireplace to build or to purchase is a wood fireplace. It's mm-hmm. just a, it's a box with some fire rated brick. But and if you compare that with a say a gas fireplace that is, you know, several thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. But when you buy a wood fireplace, you've got to build a chimney. And when you add the cost of the chimney to the wood fireplace, the wood fireplace actually ends up being more expensive than the gas fireplace that can be direct vented to the outside because you don't have to build <laughs> the chimney for the gas fireplace. So it's a matter of not only understanding the, the cost of the individual line items, but also the global cost of a particular feature in a property. And I can give you 20, 30 examples like that of things that you want to go through as part of your value engineering exercise. Now, can you please start that course for us? We do need it. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, every single case is different. And, yeah. You know, this is the other thing. Every single case is different. You know, you can have 
surface parking, structured parking, ground level structured parking, underground structured parking, all these different things, uh, surface drainage, um, underground drainage, uh, surface detention, underground detention, all these different things can be multipliers on the cost of your project. And uh, it's a matter of getting with the right consultants who are experts in those particular features and, uh, and then asking a million questions. Uh, nobody yeah. was born knowing how to do this. I wasn't born knowing how to do this. And it just came from asking a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Amazing. You were so helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. So what is the scope of this first project that you're considering doing? So we just want to start uh, small with doing residential and upgrading uh, maybe multi-unit residential projects in the Bay Area and uh, grow from there. She has a ton of experience dealing with the city and with a lot of projects as well um, in both single family and also multifamily. So uh, we hope to grow hopefully pretty fast uh, with this partnership. Fantastic. Well, Stephanie, these are great questions. And for the listeners at home, definitely, if you've got questions that you think would be of broad interest, definitely send them in. We love to hold AMA episodes. That is, ask me anything. Love to answer your questions live on the air. So if you have a question you think would be of broad interest, definitely send it in to victor at victorjm.com. That's victor at victorjm.com. And Stephanie, good luck with your project. And we'll speak in the near future. And for the listeners at home, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. 